0: Okay, um, if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read probably the last uh, third of that chapter and then uh, hook it into chapter 4, um, verse 5. You know, 1 Timothy 3, if you're somewhat familiar with the Bibles, you probably think, oh, 1 Timothy 3, that's, um, that has to do with the qualifications for the office of elder and deacon, and that's really true, Uh, and we kind of usually leave it at that, but the latter part of chapter 3, we're probably not very familiar with, and that's that part that we're going to be considering um, this afternoon, and then we're going to pick up also this afternoon, uh, where we left off last time in this more instructional part of our church's life in the afternoon service, as we've been going through, uh, as many of you know, but if you're a visitor here, you may not know this, but we're going through uh, what we call a catechetical document. Um, the, the church throughout its history has produced um, different ways of formulating the Christian faith. And one of those formulations is what we call a catechism. And a catechism simply is a teaching tool. And there's a teaching tool that we've been using that has stood the test of time since the 1500s. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, So we're going to confess that in just a moment. But for now, um, we're going to read this um, before uh, we actually read this, however... Um, I want to uh, cite a part of an article that is worth citing, I think, before we actually read the scriptures and also recite together the catechism. There, we're, we're living in a time, I think, where uh, people think that, oh, churches who connect to what we call catechisms and confessions and creeds and all that, that's just kind of, I don't know, formal and, and kind of dead. But it's kind of interesting that if you do any kind of reading on the broader evangelical church, um, there's a movement afloat actually where uh, there, there are younger churches that uh, want something deeper. They want something more substantive and they want something that's more historically rooted. I find that very interesting. You would think if they're younger, they're willing to ditch everything, you know, and just give me everything that's contemporary and kind of cool. and. Well, that's been done for the last 10, 20, 25 years, and what's happening, especially the younger crowd's getting burned out on this, and they're looking for something, like I said, more substantive and more rooted. And we're living in an age where, especially a number of younger people who grew up in the church are actually, you've probably heard this term used, deconstructing. That means they're they're dismantling the faith and everything that was given to them, or maybe not given to them, and they're leaving the Christian faith altogether. And it's becoming quite a problem for the church. And so there was a writer for the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken, who writes uh, an article entitled In Praise of the Boring, Uncool Church. And this is what he says, and he's addressing younger individuals who are in the process of dismantling their faith. He says this, he says, It's tragic to see tattooed celebrity pastors and hip churches fail. For those of you, he's talking to those in the process of dismantling, who are part of these kinds of churches and now are in the process of deconstructing, he says there's a better way. In other words, he's encouraging them, listen, um, uh, don't leave the church. Don't leave Christ above all, but don't leave the church. And he writes this. Instead of cool churches full of people who look like models, find the most faithful church full of people who are growing to look like Jesus Instead of a church where everyone shares the same style in music, whether traditional or contemporary, find a church where everyone shares a passion for Jesus, his word, and the pursuit of holiness. Instead of a church with the most charismatic celebrity pastor, who you'll probably never meet, find a church where Jesus is the biggest star and the pastor is a humble, low-profile guy with a long track record of integrity in life and ministry. Instead of a reinvented church where discontinuity with the past is a virtue, find a church where history and tradition are known and celebrated. I'll add this, including the historic practice of catechetical instruction. Very good. Instead of a church that caters to your comfort and never challenges you, find a church where you are uncomfortable in a way that pushes you to grow. I think this should be our desire for pathway that we just don't be a church where we just make everything comfortable for people and whoever wants to come, hey, just come on board. No, we want to make people feel uncomfortable in a good way. To say, you know what, we're a church that takes things seriously, we take the faith seriously, we take our worship seriously, and we want you to take the faith and worship and the church seriously with us. We want to be committed disciples of Christ. And then he finally writes this, maybe a boring, uncool, unabashedly churchy church is actually a good thing. You wouldn't think that a, a younger person in their 20s or 30s would write something like that, but increasingly, a number of them are. So let's do something uncool. Let's read the Scriptures and do some catechetical work this afternoon. All right. First Timothy 3, let's begin reading at verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. Now especially verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, in reference to Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We saw it this morning, didn't we? In the blessings of bread and wine. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, having read that, I want to draw your attention now to uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, if you put that up there. Now, as we go on through in this series, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we considered question and answer 21 of the Catechism dealing with with uh, the, the question was, what is true faith? And then we confessed what true faith was over against kind of bogus, counterfeit, inauthentic faith. And we saw that there are three primary component parts of true faith, I'm not gonna rehearse that now for the sake of time, but we looked at what true faith was, a definition of true faith. Uh, now, what we're doing is we're moving on. We have to ask ourselves the question, well, what, what is the content? What's the substance of the faith that we should be professing? So, question 22, what then must a Christian believe or embrace by faith? And let's say together, all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. All right which leads to the question, what is that summary, okay? What are these articles? And let's say together, now we can confess the Apostles' Creed together, and let's say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried, he descended into hell. On the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe a Holy Catholic Christian Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The word amen meaning these things that we stated are not false. Uh, they are true. You notice, you know, we, we, we say the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, like a lot of churches, not all of them, but a lot of churches will confess at some point in their church service, whether it be morning or evening, they confess the words of the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know if you really think about the Creed. Um, I, uh, w- when we're confessing it together, I think it's very easy that when you do something on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, that you just kind of do it because it's done and then you move on. But it's it's well worth, upon occasion, just stop. Where you stop and you just really think about what you're saying, and and you notice when we confess together the Apostles' Creed that it's really it really contains really basic teachings, fundamental teachings, and that's that's different from let's say okay, so that's what we call a creed from. the the Latin word credo, which means I believe or we believe. And so when we say these things together, we're saying we we believe those fundamentals. We believe those fundamentals. Now creeds are different from other documents that we have, a part of our church, different than catechisms, which is another teaching document in question-answer form. But it's also different from our confessions. And and, and a creed is different from our confessions and catechisms in that a creed is, is much more fundamental, much more basic. If you read our confessional standards, you, you find that, that they're, they're, they're more, much more specific, and they dive deeper into specific doctrines. Um, the Apostles' Creed, as well as other creeds, which I'll mention in just a moment, are, are not only basic statements of, of faith, but they are so basic that we also share them with other Christians throughout time and, and also throughout the world today. And so that, that's kind of the difference between creeds and confessions and catechisms. But what we're looking at in the context of the Apostles' Creed is actually an explanation of the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know if you know this, but what the Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism does, is it takes the Apostles' Creed and at a certain major point in a catechism goes on to explain each article, for us of the Apostles' Creed. So what we're doing here this afternoon is we're confessing the Apostles' Creed, and I'm going to talk about creedal Christianity, and then in the subsequent weeks, we're going to take each of these articles of the Apostles' Creed, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to explain them, and then we're going to discuss these things together. So we're, we're, going, to, we're going to dive deep, okay, as we should, over the next number of weeks. Now... Um, it is not lost on me, and I hope it's not lost on you, that uh, in our worship services, we're going to receive people who who are not members of this church. They may, may come from other churches, uh, let's say Canadian Reformed churches, or, or churches that are not of our particular federation. Um, sometimes we receive people who don't really know much about the Christian faith at all, and then we receive people who don't know, and I hope, we got to pray for this that we receive people who don't know anything about about the Christian faith. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it to you again. I'm going to put it rather bluntly that you're going to you, you should expect that when I lead in worship, that I'm going to lead in such a way that I don't I don't want to be too simplistic, but I don't want to speak over the heads of individuals. I am assuming I'm going to assume that there are going to be people here, even if they don't show up. That there are going to be people here in every service. That that need to hear the gospel in simple form, and they need to hear explanations in a simple form as well, and so that they may understand. That's what we call contextual worship. That is being able to apply the gospel in a way that's intelligible, and credible, and accessible to those outside the Christian faith. Okay. Now, with that being said, I'm well aware of the fact that there there are some who come into our worship, and especially in the afternoon worship service, and as we're going through this thing called the uh, document called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and, and saying the Apostles Creed as we do in our worship at the afternoon service where they're going to think, oh man, you know uh, and I've had people tell me this before it's like this it, it seems really formal and kind of stayed kind of stiff honestly uh, a little bit dead you know you're all both you're all just droning on right when you say the Apostles Creed together and it just and you've probably heard this before too it just' I don't know it's got a tinge of Roman Catholic in it, right? Don't the Catholics? They'd say they have creeds and they have catechisms, but here's the thing. When people say that, here, here's a good response, and you have to say, you know what? Um, I know it sounds maybe Roman Catholic to you, but you need to understand that there is a rich history of churches that are not Roman Catholic that have creeds and confessions and catechisms. Now, actually, um, 1 Timothy 3, if you put that up there, uh, 1 Timothy 3, why don't you take a look at verse uh, 16. Yeah, it's up there. So, um, if you have a Bible with you, you'll notice that w- what we have on the overhead is not probably what it looks like in your Bible. So, if I, in my Bible, for instance, the English Standard Version of the Bible, you, you in verse 16, you have it laid out, not like it's laid out here, just one sentence after another, but you have this, verse 16 is laid out in, in brief lines, brief statements. In fact, it comes in the form of six brief basic statements where many theologians actually believe that verse 16 was an ancient hymn. Or some of them will contend that it was an ancient creed of some time. It was a, it was a basic statement of faith by the church, right? So when we talk about the Apostles' Creed, people go, "Oh, creed." It's like, well, wait a minute. In the Bible, here. Although we can't definitively say yes to this, we, we do have an indication here that there's either an ancient hymn that is expressing the basics of faith, or a creedal statement by the church. So, so creeds are not outside the realm of the Bible. The Bible itself looks like it has a creed in it. okay. But there are other creeds that the church has developed over time. Um, for instance, you know, we confess the Apostles' Creed, but there are other creeds. And you say, well, why did they develop these creeds? Well, as teaching tools, yes, but also in order to help the church uh, guard itself over against errors that very easily came into the church, kind of like what we would call a theological cancer. If you know anything about cancer, and some of us, are struggling with that or have struggled with that. Cancer oftentimes works very slowly in the body, and that's what happens in the church too. Church errors sleep, uh, seep very slowly into the church and corrupt the church over time. So that's one of the reasons why we have creeds written. Okay, And, and um, let, let me give you an example of that, and I want to get to this text. Um, think about the Nicene Creed. We have that creed in, in the back of our, our book of praise, right? So you have the Nicene Creed. The, the, the Nicene Creed was written, I don't know if you know this, in the 4th century in order to guard the church over against a heresy called Arianism. And the Arians denied the deity of Christ. That is, they said that Jesus is not fully God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a modern-day expression of Arianism is actually the Jehovah's Witness movement. They're what we call modern-day Arians. They also deny the deity of Christ. And already, about 1,700 years ago or more, the church said, no, 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 that's not what we believe, and that's not what we believe that the Bible teaches. So they articulated the Nicene Creed in order to express Jesus Christ, among other things, as fully deity. Or, for instance, I'll give you two other quick examples. You have um, another creed uh, called the Creed of Chalcedon. Uh, written in the 5th century. And the Creed of Chalcedon basically is written against the heresies of what we call Eutychianism and Nestorianism. So Orthodox Christian theology teaches us that Jesus is one person, two natures, human and divine. The Eutychians said, no, Jesus' two natures are fused. And the Nestorians said, no, they're separated. Right Now, there are implications to that, which I'm not going to get into now. And then finally, finally there's another creed that comes from what was called the Synod of Orange, and I can't remember what year that was, but it was many years ago. And the Synod of Orange was written against a heresy called, and maybe you've heard of this before, Pelagianism. And there's a man named Pelagius who denied fundamental doctrines that we embrace here, total depravity. Uh, uh, He denied uh, original sin. He denied the doctrine of predestination. So my point is, without going on and on about these creeds, they were written in order that the church might remain the pillar and the support of the truth over against theological cancers that invaded the church. So creeds serve in a very important purpose. All right. Fundamentally, I want you to remember this. This is going to be part of our discussion. The major uh, reason for creeds is this. In order to protect the truth, in order to preserve the truth, in order to promote the truth, those three Ps. I'll repeat them a little bit later on, okay? Now, let's get to the text. The Apostle Paul, and I want to deal just kind of briefly uh, this afternoon, because I want to have a little bit of time for discussion as well. Um, uh, this this part of the scripture is written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was a young pastor who needed guidance, and the Apostle Paul talks about this old war horse who has a lot of experience in the ministry. He talks to this young pastor and says, okay, You have this new church in Ephesus, a lot of new believers, and so what I want you to do is I want you to follow my advice here, what I tell you regarding how to organize the church and how to get this thing off the ground and so on. So in chapter 1 and then also in chapter 2, especially Paul talks about the place of women in the church, and he talks about the offices of the church and qualifications for elder and deacon. And then he gets to that last part of chapter 3 that a lot of us are not so familiar with, but it's there where the Apostle Paul talks about the church as the church of God, and he, he defines the church as the pillar and the support of the truth. So Christ has given us His truth. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Christ has entrusted the church to hold on to the church, to protect that church uh, truth, To preserve that truth and also to promote that church. He's he's entrusted that to the church and church needs to guard that uh, very seriously, okay? And then he goes on to define, not in its entirety, but he goes on to get at the very heart of the truth that the church is to protect. Well, what truth is that? Now we come to verse 16. Take a look at it on the overhead or if you have your Bibles with you. It all revolves, these fundamental truths revolved, not like the Apostles' Creed, around the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it focuses on Jesus Christ, His person, and His work. Notice this in verse 16. This is what the church confesses, and it's really, really basic. He, in reference to Christ, was manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, you see me up here. I got flesh because I'm a human being, right? So if you come up here and you, you touch my hand, you'll be able to feel my hand, and and you can talk to me, I'm a human being. Christ came to this world as a human being. There was a heresy many years ago called docetism, and the docetists said, no, 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 Jesus did not come in the flesh, he only appeared to be in the flesh. Or there's another heresy called Gnosticism, and they didn't didn't embrace Jesus come in the flesh either because they, they, they succumbed to what we call Greek philosophy, which viewed the body as something negative and the spirit as something positive. Anyway, but, but this ancient creed says, no, 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 against all these errors, we must confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And why did he have to come in the flesh? Well, we looked at that probably about a month ago. Why did Jesus have to be human? Why did Jesus have to be divine, right? Now, we keep moving on. It says he, and here's a little bit of confusion here, he's, he's, because we're not sure what this means. He was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, what it's really saying is the Holy Spirit who validated Jesus' ministry and his message and his miracles. And it was the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus really to carry out his ministry. So we see the role of the Spirit here in the life of Jesus. Third bullet point here, out of six, he was seen by angels. They gave testimony to the reality of Christ. They saw him and they ministered to him. Another fundamental truth about Jesus Christ, he was proclaimed among the nations. Now, we see that in the book of Acts, right? Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, you will receive power from on high when my spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the world. Yes, Jesus is proclaimed throughout the world, but not only proclaimed throughout the world among the nations, but also many people came to believe upon him. And the final thing it says here is that Jesus was taken up into glory, which course, refers to his ascension. Now, this simple hymn or this simple creed does not tell us everything about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it lays out some fundamentals that we must believe if we are going to live our lives as heartfelt, believing, and orthodox Christians, so, if you look at verse 16, what you're going to see is that, that the Apostle Paul here, in writing this, is basically saying, listen, Jesus was not a mythological figure, Jesus was not some imaginary figure, Jesus was not just a good person, like a lot of people think, or Jesus was not some good moral and very astute teacher, like Confucius or Buddha or, I don't know, Muhammad, but Jesus is who He claimed to be. He is God in the flesh. He's validated by the ministry of the Spirit. He's seen by angels. He's proclaimed among the nations. He's believed upon among people in the world, and yes. He's not only risen, but He's ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, full of authority and power and glory. That's our statement to the world. Those are the fundamentals that we too must confess. And, you know, whether it be this confession or the um, getting back to the Apostles' Creed that we confess together, you know, we, we have to remember that the fundamentals that we confess in the Apostles' Creed and that are articulated uh, more specifically by the Heidelberg Catechism, um, we need to remember that these are truths that we confess with other Christians, with other Christians. I think sometimes we really get into our catechisms and our confessions and we kind of lose sight of the tie that we have with um, just other brothers and sisters in, in Christ. You know, uh, we have uh, Baptists, we have Pentecostal, we have Anglican, we have Lutheran, we have other Christians throughout the world who, although they would define some of the fundamental articles of the Apostles' Creed differently than we do, nonetheless, we do share a fundamental commitment to these basic articles of the Apostles' Creed, which define us as Christians who rightly divide the word of truth. And outside those fundamentals, one cannot call themselves, really, a Christian. Okay? So we need to remember that. That's why, that's why um, we call our creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, we call them ecumenical creeds. We don't call our confessions or our catechisms ecumenical because they're not shared by other brothers and sisters in different denominations or churches. But these ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the creed of uh, the Athanasian Creed the Nicene Creed are, are, are creedal statements whereby we say, together, together, we believe these things. And I think that's important to say lest we become kind of sectarian in our spirit. We have this kind of attitude. It's always kind of us versus them. Sometimes that's the case. But many times we can say not us versus them, but us with them. We confess these same things together. Now, back to our text. The creed in our text, in the Apostles' Creed, were designed, as I said, basically to do three things. To protect the faith, to preserve the faith, and also to promote the tri- faith. We could say that um, about, our, about our confessions and our, and our catechisms as well. Now... Um, you might, kids, you might ask the question like, okay, um, in every afternoon service we confess the Apostles' Creed together. I mean, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is it just something that's tradition? You know, um, we we go through a time in our afternoon service where I get up here and and I preach on a scripture passage and I explain a part of the Catechism, and you can say, well, why do we do that? You know, is that just something that we just I you know? I've always done. We've always done it that way, you know. And and the answer is no. It's it's never it's never sufficient to say when we explain something. Well, it's just because we've always done it that way. That that, that that's not compelling to anybody, and especially not compelling to the younger crowd. So why why do we confess the Apostles' Creed and why do we go through our to our catechetical document in the afternoon service? And again, I'm gonna list those three things. So I want you to listen to this. First of all, it's to protect the truth to protect it you say protect it against what protect it from as i said earlier from error that creeps into the church like a theological cancer um you know sometimes you have people in the church who will say something or confess something or want to promote something and you go that doesn't sound quite right And one of the ways that we can gauge whether or not something is correct or not or right or not is not just on the basis, most importantly, of the Bible, which assumes that we know the Bible well enough, but also our confessional standards, right? Catechism, Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dor. These are summaries of the gospel, and what they do is they provide boundaries for us where we say, okay, if there's a teaching comes in, if it does not accord with those boundaries or if it doesn't fit within those boundaries and we say that's not something that we can accept here. You may have to find another church where that is accepted but, but, but not here. And, be, and, and the reason why we call them three, the three forms of unity Heidelberg and the Belgic and the Canons of Dort is because we want to preserve the unity. So when we confess the same things unity as you know is very precious in the church. So we want, we want to protect the truth, and we want to protect unity and stability and purity in the church. It's one of the reasons why we have creeds and we have confessions. So we want to protect the truth. Okay, But secondly, we want to, we want to preserve the truth. We want to preserve it. We want to keep it. And we want to have it grow among us. Um, you know, as, as I said at the beginning of the service, and there's a reason why I did this, uh, I said there's, there's a, a lot of um, younger people who are becoming disenchanted with the church. Uh, and and there's, there's various reasons for that. Sometimes it's just hypocrisy, sometimes it's superficiality, sometimes it's just dead traditionalism where there seems to be a lot of things that are right, but the kids are going, if it's so right, then why isn't there more life and all this kind of stuff. There's, there's various reasons why kids are just kind of kids, teenagers, people in their 20s, just kind of gradually backing out of, of, of the door of the church. And what what we want to do is we want to just not recite things like our creeds and our catechisms, but we want to engage them, we want them explained, and we want them to be discussed and have time to chew on these things together so that, so that. An so that our creeds and our catechism and confessions are not just something that we say, oh, okay, yeah, I subscribe to that. It's on the basis of that, too, that I make a public profession of faith. No, it's something that we want to understand, and we want these things to live within us. We want the scriptures. We want Christ to live within us, but we want our theological distinctives to live within us as well. We want to be grounded. And, you know, there's a lot of churches that are not taking the time to ground adults and ground children in the faith, and and when the faith is not rooted in us, both in content and in life, say sayonara to the younger generation, because they're backing out, they're backing out, and it's not something easy to confess, but it's, it's true. And finally, the reason why we go through what we do in our afternoon service is not to, to protect, and not just to preserve the truth, but in order to promote it, in order to promote it. Many times I've heard people say, well, you know, I, I have a hard time sharing my faith. And I'll say, okay, well, why do you have a hard time sharing your faith? And it usually revolves around two things. One is there just seems to be a lack of courage or boldness. People are afraid that people are going to get in their faces, and I get that. I mean, that was a concern of the other church, right? And they were under much more persecution than we were. We are. But uh, uh, another difficulty for people is that they, they'll sometimes say, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'll say. And then I'll, then I'll think, well, how long have you been in the faith? Well, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and still after all that time, you don't know what to say? You don't have the basics of the faith down? We want to correct that. We want to correct that. That's why we're doing, in part, what we're doing here in the afternoon service, having things explained, but also discussing matters together as well. This is why we are, not as a boastful statement, just as a matter of record, this is why we are a creedal. Church, and then very, very quickly, just this. and And this is something that I don't oftentimes think we think about when it comes to our creeds that we confess, particularly apostles in the Nicene Creed, and that is this. The design of creeds is not only to protect, preserve, and promote the truth, but in order to elicit a doxological response for us, from us. And you probably go, what are you talking about doxological response? Well, doxological response is a response of praise. So when we confess the Apostles' Creed together, or when we confess this creedal statement or this hymn statement in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, what we're really doing is we're, we're voicing not only our agreement to these things, but we're praising God through the creed's that we profess together. We're saying we praise a Christ who, according to verse 16, came in the flesh. Man, he was real, and he was like us, and he identifies with us. We praise a Christ who is vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is saying this is not a lie. Christ is a truth. He did exist. We praise a Christ who was revealed, not made up, not a mythological figure, but, man, he's real. He's real. We praise a Christ who for us rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. In other words, he's not dead. He's he's alive and he's ruling. And finally, we praise a Christ who beckons us to repent and to believe. A very Jesus who is real, who is living, and who's not disinterested in any of us here this afternoon, but who bids us to come to him to repent and believe and embrace him as our savior, as our deliverer, the Lord of lords, and the king of kings. Yes, the ultimate intent of our creeds is so that we would come ultimately to the very point that Doubting Thomas, who we considered a few weeks ago in our Eastern service, so that we might come to the point of Doubting Thomas, where in coming to grips with the reality and the life of Christ said, what? "My Lord, my Lord, and my God, that's a doxological statement, a statement of praise, and that's what we should have as well. Let's come to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes discussing these things together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, O oh God, for the deposit that you have given us. Lord, we have a rich heritage. We have a rich heritage of not only a high view of the Bible, its inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy, but we have a rich heritage of creeds and confessions and catechisms and a history of belonging to churches that take these things seriously. Father, we pray then that we would not only take these things seriously, but we would do our level best with the wisdom that you supply through your spirit to make them live, to make them live in our lives as adults, but especially in the lives of our children. God, we need your grace. We need your spirit to that end. Grant that so we may continue to protect the truth, preserve it, and also promote it in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now.